Thank you all for tuning in today for episode 12 of the podcast. And we're excited to present Tommy and Patricia with Chen and Suchart Studios. And they have some amazing projects they work on, modern design, super creative. They're a husband and wife, boutique firm. And on the episode, we talk about marketing, the balance of life and marriage and work, as well as where they source their creativity for their designs. Welcome everybody to the AFT Construction Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Levitt, and I have some amazing guests today. I have Tommy Suchart and Patricia Chen. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for thanks, having us. Yeah, thanks for joining. So for those of you that have not seen their work, uh, definitely get out there and get on their website after this episode and check them out because they are award-winning um, architects here. Well, not just here in town, but nationally. They've done some amazing projects. They're a boutique architectural firm, and they specialize in modern architecture. And when I say modern, it's unbelievable. Like it, the minute I met them, I was super fascinated with their work, their designs. In fact, there's a common client we have that just is in love with them and showed me their stuff and, and uh, huge fans of their work. So welcome, guys. So you guys are a husband and wife architectural firm, and we'll get into that. But I wanted to ask you first, you know, where did you get your creativity? Because if you go on your website and see your portfolio, it's, it's amazingly creative, unlike anything I've seen, especially here in town. So where does that come from? We love travel. So we travel a lot to different cities, especially before kids. And I think that's where we get a lot of our inspiration. So what cities have you been to that inspire you the most? I mean, what are, you know? Um, I would say cities, I mean, cities all over. There's uh, a tremendous amount of um, learning that we have from just traveling to other environments. You know, Phoenix is a specific environment that has a certain amount of, um, or lack thereof, urbanity. And we like to travel to other places which kind of represent the extreme opposite. So Phoenix being a roughly 150-year-old city, you know, we have to travel to Europe a lot or Japan, Asia, where, you know, cities have a much, much longer history of uh, culture and their built environment. Yeah. So I would say even further back, though, than, than just traveling, um, because we've both had opportunities uh, throughout our lives to travel with our families, um, even before we met, is, um, you know, just creativity as a uh, outlet of, you know, kind of primarily based before in hobby mm-hmm. as, a, as a kid, um, whether that be um, sketching and drawing or just being creative with one's hands. Um, and of course, the cliche for all architects is, you know, a fondness for Legos. Yes. Of course. So at least in my uh, upbringing, that was uh, the primary uh, aspect of creativity. And I don't know, Patricia, maybe. So both of you, I mean, both of you are do these amazing modern designs, and you're talking about where that stems from. Because where does that come from? I mean, how how does someone get involved in architecture? Was that a childhood? aspiration or did you kind of fall into it because of you know building legos and doing different uh you know traveling ventures i think it was a um passion for art in general to begin with and um so as it gets closer to applying for colleges my parents basically told me you we know that you love art but you have to do something art related that you can support yourself Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of family, family friends that are architects. So I intern with them a lot. And in a way, that's kind of how I decided to go into architecture um, and loved it. And where did you go to school? Where did you do architectural school? Uh, we both went to the Rhode Island School of Design. 
for undergrad, and we went to um, Harvard for grad school. It's amazing. Great credibility there. <laughs> Most architects, are you naturally creative? Or do you kind of find that, you know, as you're drawing and playing with Legos and sketching, I mean, where does that really get instilled, just that des- desire to be an architect? I think, well, from a very early age, I kind of knew that I wanted to be an architect specifically. And then even like Patricia described, you know, my parents were like, you know, architecture is a hard profession. Why don't you become an engineer instead? <laughs> and that definitely wasn't in uh, my blood uh, because for me, one plus one doesn't always equal two. Um, so the kind of creative aspect of, of anything, especially, you know, being able to create with one's hands, uh, whether that be through sketch or whether that be through, um, you know, building something physically with your hands, was and, and then ba- basically trying to create something that you're bringing into the world, into existence. That was something that was of you know strong interest uh, for me since I was you know since I can remember. So let's fast forward. So you're you're talking about you know this creativity and as you're thinking of how you want to create this design and these buildings and these houses. So do you get resistance from your customers when you have this vision of how you want it to look? Do they ever push back? Yes. <laughs> so how do you handle that? I mean, if they push back because I mean, you both push the boundaries, at least what I've seen in here in Phoenix, right? Your, your style is very unique to most of what we have in town. So I'm sure at some point there's resistance. How do you deal with that? I, I mean, I would say luckily, uh, maybe now more so than earlier, uh, clients come to us or seek us out because of the work they've seen and they want something of that nature. Yeah, you built a brand, they see that, that's what they want, so you're not doing that. So what about in the beginning? Because you've been pushing the boundaries, right? You've pushed a different style of architecture here in town. So how was that in the beginning, you know, getting to this point? So in, in the beginning, um, I mean, it was definitely more challenging than it is now because we didn't have a portfolio to kind of, um, you know, to stand on, if you will. So being able to convince someone that this is the direction that you should go and here's the reasons why was initially challenging. But luckily, again, the clients that we attracted for whatever reason uh, were the key thing. The clients were very open. They were open to um, kind of starting anew and not bringing much baggage to the table where they had a certain understanding of what home meant or what modern means um, and, and things like that. I mean, definitely there was some resistance because you get clients that they think they want what you do, but in the end they either, they just don't really want. They don't mm-hmm. understand what it takes or aren't willing to, um, in a way, uh, change how they have a certain understanding of something uh, to kind of you know, push the boundaries of maybe how they will live or how they aspire to live in a modern home that we would design. So there's two parts of that as you're bringing that up, because I think for any business, I deal with it in my business and you do architecture. How do you deal setting expectations with the client, right? Not only for, that's twofold, one timeline, right? Because it takes time to create, be creative and design. And then, so how, how do you set that expectation for the timeline? And then number two how do you set that expectation of them entrusting you in that design, right, and how it'll finish? Well, I think in our design process, we um, we design responsibly. Um, I think everything we do, there's a reason for why we do it. It's not just putting something down on the paper because it looks good. 
Um, so explain that a little bit more. So if it's so, is there a, a, a theory behind it from aesthetics, from energy efficiency, from you know getting different shapes? I mean, what is the the mentality? We're just trying to understand a little bit more of how you go through that process. I would say it's it's all of the above. Like any time the pencil goes down to the paper. You know, we're thinking of all those aspects and more mm-hmm. of what you just described. I think the the thing that we like to describe to to people is that you know if you have a reasonable sense of proportion and can color coordinate somewhat decently, then most people can get like a a room or a space or a building that looks halfway decent. That doesn't mean it's architecture. Architecture for us is something that really uh, touches your soul and aspires the occupants of that particular project, whether it be a commercial project or a uh, you know just a home uh, that aspires that inspires the people that are going to be experiencing that piece of architecture every day. So that's the kind of goal that we have is that we're always trying to create something that in the end inspires the people who are using the building, hopefully on a daily, hourly mm-hmm. basis. Well, I'll say I've noticed that. I mean, I love that you've spoken to the soul of architecture because there's a lot of talent out there, right, that only skims the surface where you guys are digging deep into, you know, the soul of the home, if you will. Um, because not only, you know, it's it, one thing that's challenging about modern architecture is a lot of things are designed that maybe may not function, right? It may not waterproof mm-hmm. properly or you have a lot of glass in here where it's hot. You know, we have a lot of energy issues with the heat. So, you know, how have you continued that education to understand how to incorporate these amazing designs but still perform? That's a, that's a very good question. I mean, it's a tough balance between, um, I'll start with, it's a tough balance between the creative aspect of where you want something to go, a direction, and then incorporating every part of the sort of laundry list of things, aesthetics, uh, tectonics, you know, the, the construction science, uh, energy efficiencies. At a certain point, you want all of it to kind of be firing on all cylinders. But, you know, as you move, for, but negotiate between all of those things, some of them have more of a priority and some of them have less of a priority of different aspects of that laundry list. So it's a careful balance constantly and hopefully as an aggregation of all those parts, the whole is better off than you would have been if you didn't kind of analyze those things uh, to begin with. So you named some of those, the checklist, if you will, those things you're thinking of as an architect with your modern design. Is there any that are more priority? I mean, is there a certain one you start with as you're looking at that design? Whether it be energy efficiency, whether it be um, waterproofing, whether it be the organic design itself? I would say, I mean, of course, as a visual artist, first and foremost, you know, that's the first kind of response. The visceral visceral response that we have as architects is ultimately what is it going to uh, what is it going to look like? But quickly thereafter is because you can't have what it's going to look like without understanding uh, the tectonics of it, you know, how it's constructed, and not only the technical aspects of how it's constructed, but how do you construct it in a way that achieves those aesthetic goals? So therein lies the kind of art 
which I, again, phrase tectonics, which is the art and science of construction itself. And so part of that aspect is then weaving in issues of sustainability or energy efficiency that, again, allow all those things to melt together. So when they do kind of work together as a whole, then it's, then it's great. It's a, you know, it's a, it's firing on all cylinders at that point, and um, you know it's it's perfect in a way. So one thing that's unique, if I understand correctly, so you're doing the exterior design, but you're also doing the interior design as well, right? In yes. most of your homes. So where where did that background come from? Because it's you know in commercial construction, you'll see a lot of architectural firms, and they do everything, you know, the interior as well as the building itself. So how did that come into play that you wanted to bring not only the exterior structure but also the interior design? Um. A lot of times people ask us, do you just do the outside or just the landscape or only the interior? And we always tell them we do everything because I think you can't design something without looking at everything as a whole. And it's super valuable. I mean, there's a lot of value for the client that you can be a one-stop shop, if you will, even a boutique firm as yourself. But, I mean, you think about the the, the amount of knowledge because now you're learning about interior finishes and products and cabinetry and flooring so I mean how do you just stay up to speed on all these moving parts um, well part of well part of it is we want that control mm-hmm. of the inside and the outside yeah say it as it is you got to have that control you need your footprint you don't want someone tinkering right. with your design right. right so I think part of it is we have to force ourselves to to keep us keep ourselves updated on you know the interior the material different window system and material on the outside plans landscape just because you're involved in everything right landscape to interiors yeah i mean i think the kind of fundamental aspect of all those disciplines that you mentioned is that they're all rooted in design. So design to us is not um, just limited to uh, one discipline or another because all of them need to support an overall philosophy that we try and bring to the table, whether or not that's the selection of a door handle, uh, how a door frame works within a wall, or whether or not you know there's a roof line that needs to be a certain uh, length long. So all of it is rooted in design. So in, in that way, it makes it easier to then make certain selections because it's not about just throwing a bunch of different things at it to see what looks good, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. It's really about how do those components support the overall philosophy of a particular design. So where do you, as that knowledge, so being a, a builder myself, you know, I find that as I've worked on different projects, commercial, residential, when I'm out of town or on vacation or with my family, I'm always looking right at mm-hmm. where I'm at. You just have this eye for detail and quality and, and you know, in different hotels will stay, I'll notice things. So are you guys consciously always, it's hard to shut off, right? And so when you guys are, are you guys looking for tours and, and looking for different ways to, you know, just to see that? You know, how other people are executing those details. It, it never oh, shuts off. Yeah. It Everything is from little objects that, you know, in the store that we find how how it comes together or to hotel rooms or just walking around in the city, how the light quality hits the building, everything. I would say a good example of that is uh, when our son was maybe about three years old. Um, we, of course, wanted to design his uh, Halloween costume. 
and uh, we, had, we had a friend that was over, an artist also, and then he overheard us talking about the corner of this cardboard car that we were building for him and how we were going to uh, adhere the corner so that there wasn't a joint and then tape it in a special way and then paint it. So again, it extends into every aspect <laughs> in the Halloween costumes. Of, of our daily lives. You know, design is just... It's something that we have a passion for, that we're critical of, and it's really important to both of us. So with that said, so tell us a little bit about your story, your background, because we know you have some amazing you know, accreditation from your schooling and background. Um, so what brought you to Phoenix? I mean, how did you both meet? So I grew up here. I'm a native. Um, I grew up here since I was, uh, you know, all, I was born uh, in Arizona um, and then stayed here up until about high school and I left to go to the East Coast uh, for school and then eventually college, graduate school, working there, you know, obviously met Patricia. Um, now, did you so. meet getting your bachelor's at Rhode Island or did you yes. meet at, okay. Yeah, so we met in, um, in 1993 now, about 25 years ago, wow. uh, in architecture school there. And architect architecture school is unique because you have uh, a, a group of people who are always together like for, 12, 14 hours a day because you have a studio-based uh, curriculum where people are sort of um, struggling through mm -hmm. that education all as a whole. So we spent a lot of time together. Uh, you know, we had, a for had the fortune of spending a lot of time together since back then and then eventually in grad school and then we worked in separate offices in Boston before deciding to say, hey, let's, let's try something else. So I got, you got so, tired of the snow. Yeah, get tired of that northeastern weather, right? Yes. Um, so you were at both at Rhode Island. You both go to Harvard, and then you work for firms in Boston. Yes. Is that right? Uh -huh. Yes, that's correct. Yes. But different firms. Different firms. Different firms. So what was the focus wanted... of each firm that you worked at? What about for you, Patricia? What yeah. what firm did you work for? Um, I worked for a company, a studio called um, Thompson and Rose. Okay. Um, they focused a lot on high end residential work. Um, and was it mostly local there in Boston, or was mostly it mostly local in New England? Yeah. Okay. What about you, Tommy? And then I worked for um, uh, a smaller boutique office, Doug Dolezal Architect, um, and his primary focus was on high-end interiors. Well, not high-end interiors. We had low budgets. It was uh, <laughs> just creatively being creative within the budgets within the that budgets. we had, mainly for uh, quite a few interiors projects that we had. So again, it was an architect who is trained as an architect and an urban designer, just like we are. But he was here. He was doing uh, interiors. interiors as well. And is that because you were working in the city and you know renovating? different buildings there in the city? Yes, he was a young architect too, and that's how everyone starts. You get a small project and mm -hmm. it's your baby and you just go go to work on it. And the interiors were a, kind of an, in, an initiating project that a lot of architects get out in the East Coast. So were both of these firms more modern focus, you know, from a design aspect? Yes. Yes. So that's the background. I mean, you have a passion for that. That's the background you were trained in it, and now you had that experience. Mm -hmm. So then what brought you, what made that decision to leave, not just the weather, but what else brought you to Phoenix? Well, I mean, definitely the weather played a big role into that, but as a, um, you know, we were, uh, we, we were a couple back then, and um, we just decided to have a change of environment and we weren't originally going to come 
to Arizona. We're going to go to, to where most people go is New York City mm-hmm. or go to California and Los Angeles. Los Angeles, yeah. And we kind of didn't want to do that. We wanted to try and see if we would have opportunities here outside of just working for someone because we knew we wanted to start our own office as soon as we possibly could have um, because we wanted to try and, you know, have our own voice and identity. So how does that how does that work? So you moved to Phoenix, and did you start your firm when you first moved here, or were you working for someone else in Phoenix? We did work for someone else in Phoenix, both of us separate. in separate offices. Separate, yeah. mm-hmm. But I would say this, as a, as a creative, one always wants to constantly be creative. So we were uh, constantly moonlighting with opportunities that we had on the side. So after work, we would work some more. <sighs> And, and slowly built our reputation based on the opportunities that were presented to us. We actually started working on our first project when we were in grad school. Oh, wow. And um, came back here, and then the first project was built, how many years? Two years after yeah, we two came years back. After. Yep. Yeah. So you designed your first project together in grad school. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then, you know, entrepreneurship, when you think about entrepreneurship, I mean, is it innate in both of you? Did you always want to be your own boss and own your own company? Or was it just more out of necessity where you felt limited in design and you wanted to have your own freedom? No, I think we always wanted to do something on our own, to not design for somebody else, mm-hmm. to have our own own um, voice. Yeah. And who leads the charge? Like when you're going through a design on a new project, mm-hmm. who takes the lead? Well, that's the that's the funny part of it all. Someone has to start, right? <laughs> you know, someone, someone does. Has yeah. To put something down on the page uh, to to elicit a response from the other person. So it it usually is myself um, because we have a schedule to yeah. go by and we have to start somewhere. And it's a very exciting part of the project. So as we usually I take the lead, start something, and then. It's a back and forth discussion that takes place um, in kind of honing that uh, piece of stone into something. I'll say at the beginning, before kids, um, we would both, and when we get a new project, we would both um, each get the site plan, and then we'll both come up with three options, and then we'll talk about it. But now nowadays, more so, Tommy. More so, Tommy lead. takes yeah. that lead. Yeah. So when uh, getting back to that, so how what counsel would you give to someone? Because you know, it's it, it's hard being a small boutique company running a company right in that little organization, and now it's a little more complex because you guys are married, you're working together, you have children now, and you're traveling, so you have work and family. D- do you ever find time to shut it off after work? Ooh, work continues after work. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think it really it really comes down to again. You know, we have a, a strong passion for design and architecture. So it's not so much a job as, as much mm-hmm. it is a, you know, a, a fun discussion that we are constantly having. And we're, you know, we're really bad about uh, nailing down a decision because we're trained to keep going mm-hmm. and to keep iterating and coming up with different solutions for the same thing. And the, uh, the hope is that in that constant... Um, iterative process is that you're making it better and better and better but with timetables you have to make a decision uh in terms of shutting it off i mean um that's tough i mean we we really love what we do so we're constantly uh constantly uh 
you know, being creative in, in some aspect. But because we have children, I would say they, in a way, force us to mm-hmm. shut it off. And we're there to dedicate time to their creativity and what they like to do. Yeah. It is funny because, I mean, I deal with that. I mean, my wife is involved a little bit. But, you know, for me, when I go home and I spend a lot of time on social media and other things and, you know, running a business, you know, there's always people yeah. texting and emailing. And she's been really good about saying, Brad, you need to put your phone down, put it upside down and hide it. So they're both pointing at each other, telling Patricia. I mean, that's the hard part, right? It's just kind of, you know, we're all tied to this phone now. Um, It's really hard to put it down. And when you're creative and your mind's always thinking, it's really hard to disengage, you know, and step away. Um, so do you, what do you guys do for activities? Do you enjoy to travel? I mean, what, what helps you check out for that work-life balance? For me right now, uh, travel is the best because you can get, you get out of your environment and you're somewhere else completely. And that is a way that enables me at least to kind of remove myself from the day to day. Um, you're still connected obviously with, uh, media of some sort, but, Again, we like to travel and travel with the kids and open their eyes up to new experiences for them mm-hmm. and for ourselves. So as often as we can, we do like to try and travel. What's your favorite place to visit? Beach, mountains, snow? <laughs> um, we like it all. We like it all. I mean, uh, beach for me is a, is a huge one, but we love traveling to you know, all the great cities of the world. Um, I would say our favorite places to, to be is Italy. Italy, Switzerland Japan. and Japan. Yeah, and it's great places to visit. So let's revisit now. So going back to architecture, when you're, what, how is your process as an architect? Do you first is the floor plan the first thing you work on with a client? Is exterior structure? Walk us through that process of that creativity. If I came in and I'm a client off the street saying, you know, Tommy and Patricia, I want to do this eight thousand square foot modern home. What what would be your first step in the process? Um, usually. We try to understand the lifestyle of the clients. What are their daily routines? Um, and usually, of course, they have their bucket list of what they want. And usually, is ten pages long. And, um, but that's it's usually, usually twelve thousand square feet of things. <laughs> right. But it can only be seven thousand square feet. And it has to only cost. And it has to cost yeah. X dollars a square foot, right? Yeah. Which is all realistic, of course, right? <laughs> And they'll tell you because they don't want to pay the higher fee for more square footage and right. the cost. I mean, we, we know how that plays. So, so how, do you, how do you reel them in? How do you keep them within the boundary, that the expectation they're setting with you? That's, that's a really tough one because I've, we've never met a client who, um, who what they want costs less than they ever expected. <laughs> yeah. It always costs more. Yep. And it's a hard pill for them to swallow and understand all the components that go into the why it costs more. But I would say for most people, most reasonable people, um, once they get to that point where they at least have an understanding of where the, the finances are going, then at least they have a better uh, way to kind of accept that. Um, but the expectations that we try and, and raise really are born out of, you know, everything that we try and extract from them in terms of, you know, what their wish list is, what their budget is, you know, it has to be reasonable. We tell most people who, um, come in the door that, you know, if it doesn't work out with us because of the, um, financial aspect of the project, then maybe we're not the right people for you Mm -hmm. and it's fine. 
With that budget aspect, I mean, you have to have a good understanding of not only what the shell is going to cost, right, the building, but also interiors and being that you're doing that. So how have you found you have a, a database internally? Do you just have a good idea? Do you do job costing with your GCs? How do you kind of gauge so as you're working through design, you know that that will be within budget? Hmm. Or do no. you just throw a dart? Like yeah. thumbs, right? <laughs> well, we've learned over the years that it's, important to get a GC involved early on mm -hmm. because I think we've had few projects that we've done all the way through construction documents and get a price and it's like wow double yeah. the cost so we've definitely learned our lesson that we need to as we go through the design process we need to understand the cost at the same time so nobody ends up with a big surprise and I think from our side you know, we, we've seen the same thing because where we've come in maybe late to the game at the end, mm -hmm. then there's that sticker shock sometimes where, uh, you know, when you see the actual pricing. But when you bring in a GC from the beginning, uh, you know, hopefully the plan is the GC is vetting some of the pricing and some mm -hmm. of the design with the architect and they're working as a team just to make sure that everyone knows that budget and they're staying within that. So do you guys ever get any pushback where a client will say, well... You know, I'm uneasy bringing a contractor in because I don't want to be tied to someone or I want to send it out, you know, to three mm -hmm. GCs. I mean, how do you handle that conversation as an architect? That's a tough one. I mean, at a certain point, um, like Patricia was describing, we've learned to have essentially a cost, estimate, a cost estimator with us who is a GC of some sort. The client is not necessarily committed to that person. Um, but there's a fee for that service from the general contractor and you know they have an interest in trying to get the project but also being paid for their time so that's how we found that it works best it's a strategy to be able to have them involved early um, have them set you know realistic goals and prices mm -hmm. as a checkpoint if you will mm -hmm. to understand where they're headed and if they're willing to accept that it's a small investment to make to ensure that no one ends up with the surprise yeah. yeah because they want to be managing that budget and expectation you know throughout the process right. and invest a little bit in that it's yeah. it's definitely worth mm -hmm. it so what's your favorite project that you guys have done um i'd say for me the stop residence uh is is probably still continues to be my favorite project and the reason why is that it is i would say one of the one of the first times that the purity of the architecture um, was able to be completely uh, manifested from the point where we first envisioned the project until where it ended up. Because inevitably, you know, in projects, there's certain things, and the Staub residence was uh, no different, there's certain things that have to drop off no matter what. But the purity... And then to find that, what do you mean that they have to drop off? Like what drops off or why? Just you have a list, a wish list, and oh. you can't have everything on that wish list that you want. But for the most part in that project, the kind of simplistic, the simple nature, quote unquote simple, the minimalist nature of what, um, say, the, the upper volume wanted to be is, you know, was, was executed in um, just many, many levels from the way the glass was installed, the flushness of the glass, the type of glass that was installed, uh, the adjacency of that to the stainless steel, the idea that the stainless steel didn't have any fasteners to disturb the surface. You know, all those things were kind of working together to kind of really create uh, as abstract of an idea 
that we first kind of conceived on paper until what it was in the built reality. And when things drop off, do you find it's because, um, because I'm sure there's things that you want to have in the project as the architect and designer, and there's things maybe the client wants to have. So do they drop off for budget? Do they drop off for complexity um, or challenge of construction? I mean, what are some of the reasons they would drop off? I think the last three that you kind of talked about, budget, complexity of construction, and then the cost. Mm -hmm. There's just a, a certain moment there where if it's just simply not achievable cost-wise, that is primarily cost-wise, because mm -hmm. cost kind of dictates complexity of construction, um, that it can't happen and you have to do, you have to find another alternative that uh, still supports the philosophy that you're trying to seek. And I think that's a challenge because you're building and designing and, you know, these cutting edge designs that's very unique in town. And so it's tough in the neighborhood maybe for appraisals. I mean, there's still costs involved for the client. So even if they have a strong budget, um, you know, they still have to be conscious of the neighborhood and the budget. So that, you know, is a challenge for you where you're doing something a little more cutting edge. So how, what would you recommend to a young company in, Indian, in any industry how do they become cutting edge? How do they now become a brand as you've done? I think first and foremost, you have to have a passion. Like, like again, we were talking about, um, you know, the kind of jokingly, the discussions for Patricia and myself that, you know, the discussions of design, they never end. But really that's born out of a passion, a love for what you do. And that extends to any profession that I've found. So the people that I find or encounter that are successful at what they do, not necessarily architects, um, they all have this, the common thread is they have a passion for what they do. So that's something that may sound cliche, but it's very true. And I think the idea of working hard at something, which means you gotta put in the time to do so. Like there's no such thing as an eight hour work day or a 40 hour work week if you talk to anyone who is remotely successful yeah. um, or, or entrepreneurial. So the work never ends um, and we're constantly uh, you know, trying to figure out how to improve and that's on all aspects of it. Design, run a business, figure out QuickBooks, all the, <laughs> all the nuanced stuff of it, right? But you say passion, it's, it, it, it's I, I agree because, you know, it bleeds through because none of us, anybody who runs a company understands how much time goes in. Nothing happens in 40 hours, right? Nothing happens in an eight-hour day. The person running the company and that has that vision is always going to put in the most time. And to be successful, you have to put in that time. If you don't have the passion, you're not going to have it. You, you know, your business won't grow. You won't set yourself apart. So what do you wish you had known, both of you, when you started your company? What, you know, going, going back in time to when you started Chen Su Chart Studio, and here you are, you know, married, you both have your style, and you're starting this new company. I mean, what do you wish you would have known back then that you could have applied to maybe give you a jump start to be more successful? For, for me, I think um, one of the biggest aspects is knowing your worth. Like knowing that what you do is worth something and not to sell yourself short on uh, you know, what the value that you bring to the table because I think there are a lot of people out there that potentially want to take advantage of that knowing that you don't have a, a large portfolio of work to do. Now on the flip side of that is that if you do that and let's say you you charge what you want to charge, you may not have any work yeah. to do, period. So, I mean, I would say even to this day, 
that's a constant um, battle that we're trying to balance in you know keeping the work coming in and at the same time uh, doing what we want to do and then having the people come to us that want the type of work that we do um, but that's that's a that's a strong one for me about kind of again knowing that you bring value to the table in what you're trying to do and that you should be able to uh, be appreciated for that, be compensated for so that. So when was that tipping point, though? When did you start to understand the worth that you both have in the industry and as an architectural firm? I think when we had a couple of projects under our belt and we knew that we were able to uh, complete it from the very beginning all the way through construction because we're heavily involved in the construction of any of our projects in terms of um, overseeing and and construction administration. Um, well, right, because you're doing the design too, so you have to make sure, like when you're talking about the stainless steel with no rivets, like yeah. you have to make sure that every detail is executed, right? right? So Exactly, exactly. So that's a constant conversation that's born out of continued appreciation for the trades that you have and the trades that you work with in kind of embracing their uh, multi-year history and experience levels, but catering it towards what you want to do so what about you Patricia I mean along those lines like what what do you wish you would have known sooner you know starting your company because hmm. as you think about that I know I'm putting you on the spot here but with Tommy I mean I agree I think with our firm it's the same thing knowing your worth I you know you I, I wasn't really um, aware of you know, the level of detail we're doing and how much we're charging that we were undercharging our clients, right? And we could have charged more because of the service we're performing. But I think those experiences, I mean, you know, getting a project, being underpaid, but at the same time, I kind of see it as they're kind of paying you for you to learn also. <laughs> so I don't, I don't see it as you're being underpaid. I feel like it's a, it's a, well, see, what I, what I like about that is you have this positive mindset, both of you, right? You look at it as maybe an investment in you, right? right. Or an investment yes. in a project. And, you know, you talk about a loss leader, right? You know, sometimes companies will have a loss leader and it's to, you know, get people in their store to sell a product. Mm -hmm. And I think for us, it's the same in architecture, construction, that maybe we may take a loss leader that allows us to get into a subdivision that we want to be in. Mm -hmm. Or, to your point, have something in the portfolio now that can set you apart, win an award, and then you can build off that. Right. Um, so, you know, as we close here, let's talk about marketing. What have you both done to market your company? I mean, how marketing is so important to any small company. So what do you do to market? I mean, I think that's a good segue into this discussion of marketing, because I would say the one other thing that we would tell ourselves before is to somehow, some way improve upon marketing mm -hmm. because we are not by nature, um, extroverted people <laughs> yeah um, you know we're quiet in what we focus on and do and expect that you know our work says everything for us um, it's a necessary evil in the profession that we are in that you are in that marketing is an aspect of that so that being said we're still learning about what that means and how to achieve that because it, we know it's not as simple as um, you know, plunking down uh, X amount of money in a magazine 
that will bring us customers necessarily. We haven't tried that, and uh, we don't. Well, know. the economy is evolving all the time, right? Everything's changing, technology. So, mm -hmm. do you have a fun experience where marketing or someone found you through a social media or something else? I mean, how how has your word is that all been word of mouth? It's primarily been all word of mouth. I mean, I would say that. So Instagram is one um, aspect of social media that I have a, we have a remote interest in because it's a visually based application. Um, so uh, you know we have gotten um, inquiries and then eventually projects that have expanded our reach outside of Arizona to uh, Georgia and uh, New Jersey to name a few. And how does that happen though? How do you get a job in Georgia and New Jersey when you're based out of Phoenix? So they're scrolling on Instagram. And so they were from Instagram. They from found Instagram, you. and they you know direct message or, or or call you up and say, hey, do you work outside Arizona? And said we work anywhere. Before she even met us, or so they hadn't met you. They just DM'd you on Instagram, yeah. and here they are in Georgia and New Jersey, yeah. messaging you through Instagram. Right. So did they mention how they found you? Were they just looking at certain hashtags? Were they looking at? You know, modern architecture. Did they did they say how they even stumbled upon your page? So I think both. In in essence, we're looking up modern architecture, and um, thank goodness for the world of Google, I guess, <laughs> out there. You know, our image populates uh, quite a bit out there, um, out out there in the in the ether of social media. It does. Well, I know that from our side, we've posted some of your pictures. You know, some of your renderings you've done in design. Um, and it's amazing just, you know, the audience that's captured mm -hmm. from that, from LinkedIn and Instagram. I mean, your design really appeals to the masses. So for all of you following, help us understand where they can find you. Tell us where they can find Chen Su Chart. So the biggest thing is Instagram right now because that's an easily updated thing um, that kind of follows our daily lives of our daily professional lives and a little bit of our personal lives at Chen Su Chart Studio is the... Um, the handle. The handle. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's, of course, our website, which is the same name, so www.chensuchartstudio.com. That's a little less updated. <laughs> but you still have great photography and great projects on there. Where else do you have any other social media platforms where you're spending some time marketing? Not really. I mean, we just started Facebook as a for the business side of uh, the Facebook page uh, things. Uh, not really strongly looking at that. And then, of course, there's LinkedIn, which I recently... Um, updated my existence there but other than that no we haven't had a strong um, uh, presence on social media and again that goes back to the idea of trying to better understand and up our marketing game well you're doing a great job I mean if you have clients finding you on Instagram from out of state it's phenomenal and just want to thank you both and for all of you guys following again look up Tommy and, and Patricia they do some amazing work uh, you'll be blown away when you visit their Instagram page, when you visit their website. So we can't thank you enough for being guests on the AT Construction Podcast, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. For thanks for having us. us. Thank you all for tuning in to our episode with Patricia and Tommy of Chen Su Chart. And next week on episode 13, we're excited to present Dr. Brian Harris. And Brian is a cosmetic dentist, has had tremendous success in the industry, and social media is a big part of why he's so successful. And now. He's become an influencer and has people travel all over the country to seek his services. So definitely stay tuned as we discuss marketing and how to leverage your brand through social media.